Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Sure. It. But is it is that because that you are right <laughs> you little shit? Sorry, go oh. oh, I'm sorry. I was going to continue with it. Persist. Is that no, because you you're most familiar with? Is it because it's truly the most? It's uh, tastes the most similar, or is it because you're less familiar with the tastes of the other beans? That's honestly a really good point. I think I'm most familiar with um, with sriracha. Um, oh really? And that okay. Ju- yeah, I, I mean, compared to uh, like uh, the jalapeno flavor, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> I think that that ultimately, yeah, yeah, thank you. I think that ultimately tastes less like sriracha and jalapeno tastes more like jalapeno. Okay, interesting. Because I think, but that- I, I don't, I don't have much mileage with cayenne. Uh, habanero or the Carolina right that's what I was thinking right is that like I think that uh, jalapeno would be the one I would be most familiar with whereas I couldn't tell you what a like a habaneros tastes like I guess like I've had them but you know I mean yeah same although I probably couldn't describe how anything tastes because it's pretty hard have you ever tried to describe how something tastes you have to be sort of you have to be very other things yeah yeah, it's like what does the color orange look like it's it's exactly like that right the color orange yeah. tastes like um, orange juice. You know, this is Got it. this is why connecting as human beings is so goddamned difficult. We it's don't true. have words to describe that's, feelings or emotions. That's or exactly right. Hair. I have some yeah. literature. I can't. For you I can't just take the the flavor of a habanero and like write it down and put it in a freaking letter. Know what I mean? Ooh. Oh, but you know what you know can what I mean? put in a freaking letter? You can put uh, the phrase "Thank you very much for listening to Trial Love." It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at or through the trial. I meant. Trial and Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, Cineapolis, uh, Minima. You can find us on Twitter at Trial Love Podcast. You can find the trial on at trialon.org uh, and at the links in our show notes where you can get tickets and uh, information on future showings and a lot of other cool stuff and cool ways to support the Trial on. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis, damn Harry, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'll buy you crayons. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Wow, neither of you did the ones that I thought was for sure what it was going to be, but uh, I can't use that one. So I'm going to go with uh, I'm a romantic who is appropriate for a science museum. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And I, can I just say that this is the first Try Love After Dark we've done in a long time. And the first mm. in an even longer time that we've done, like, an immediate watch and then record. I, I get if you bring out the dead was that we had that. Like, oh, that yeah, was, like, right. was that 15, mm-hmm. 20 episodes ago? I forget okay, what number yeah, that was. It, oh, it, it all blends that. together. But it, it does, doesn't it? It feels like old times. And it I, does. I love it. Classic, classic, classic st- shit. Um, speaking of uh, Child of After Dark, it's going to hopefully it's not too silly because it's a pretty serious downer movie we're talking about. Uh, today's film is. <laughs> Uh, it, it's 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 love letter. Uh, Kimi Tanaka, nineteen fifty three, uh, post war Japanese drama. Um, in it, I will just sort of give the summary here where Aaron normally would. Uh, in it, Reikichi is a multilingual translator and former soldier who gets a job ghostwriting love letters from Japanese prostitutes to the American GIs who left them behind after the war. It's there that Reikichi recognizes his childhood friend and lifelong flame Michiko, who utilizes the letter writing services as a prostitute until a change of career. 
the bulk of the film covers Reikichi's, um Oh, smooth. I'm sorry. I'm once again distracted by the chat. Uh, I listeners. shouldn't have done it. I, I made a mistake. Uh, I just the, said, like, this is like if we had done a trilogy after dark of smooth talk. <laughs> it's like, Woo, it let's go crazy. And then it's like, no, nah, nah, dude, you're going to yeah, lock that shit down. This is going to get down, down. Uh, let's see. Uh, she utilizes, Michiko utilizes the letter writing services that Reiki helps promote as part of uh, her prostitute career until a change of career that she tries to experience through the, midway through the movie. Uh, the bulk of the film covers Reiki's refusal to accept Michiko's situation, uh, despite the urging of his friends and brother, as well as Michiko's own attempts to reform. Pretty broad, but there's a lot of plot in this movie. Uh, it is currently at the Trilon as part of the rare perfection of Kinuyo Tanaka series, which spotlights four of the director's works, including Forever Woman, which we covered in episode 190 of our podcast. The Moon Has Risen, Love Letter, and Girls of the Night. You can get tickets uh, to the remaining movies in that series, including this one, if you're listening at the right time, at Trilon.org or at the link in the show notes. Um, Harry, it sounded like you had... Uh, some thoughts about where to start with this movie, with this discussion of this movie. Did you have any great entry oh, man. points that we want? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a fascinating movie, right? Like, I really enjoyed watching it. First of all, um, I think that it, it it ends up being something very different from what I thought it was going to be based on the first act. But I think that it's a really fascinating movie to watch, keeping in mind the context, right? Like, Kunio Tanaka was the second woman to ever direct a feature length film in Japan. Uh, she entered this in the 1954 Cannes Film Festival. It was released in December of 1953, so extremely contemporaneous with the issues it's talking about. Um, it becomes very polemic by the end of the movie, right? Literally one of the last, I believe maybe the last line in the movie is, let he who has cast the first stone pass judgment or something, right? Um, but it is it is intimately... Um, Involved in and speaking directly to Japanese men um, in the post-war climate of Japan and talking through um, what it was like for women to live through the war and the compromises that everyone had to make and what they owe to one another now as Japanese people, as um, human beings um, after this happened to them. And in doing so, it really like intimately, profoundly takes on Japanese nationalism and Japanese toxic heteromasculinity um, are very, very involved here. Um, I said it was fascinating walking out because, in fact, I, this movie is so ahead of its time that it feels a little bit behind the times from my 2022 sort of political perspective, right? Like, I think that because this movie has to speak to a, an audience that it wants to be receptive to it, namely Japanese men who are watching this movie in 1953. Uh, it has to make big compromises about its politics. It has to sort of uh, almost pretend like the opinions of Raikichi and Raikichi's brother um, are valid instead of uh, the way that we see them, which is horrifying and right, right. Uh, irredeemable. And that creates a, a big tension in the movie for me, and I'm sure for all of us, right? Because this is a movie about uh, Raikichi trying to forgive Michiko when, from our perspective, if anything, Michiko should not be forgiving Raikichi for the terrible things that he said to her and the terrible and hypocritical opinions that he holds. Um, the movie does an amazing job of depicting not only how um, calloused and uninformed and ignorant his opinions are, but also how deeply hypocritical they are in the sense that he literally materially profits from 
the Americans the same way that she does in many ways and via the same industry. Um, mm-hmm. That that being said, you can really feel Tanaka like I almost felt frustration in this movie, right? That she couldn't go further, that she couldn't actually say what she wants to say, which is that Michiko did nothing wrong, hashtag Michiko did nothing wrong, and that, in fact, she was failed by the institutions of Japan and by the nationalism of Japan and the men that were in her life. Um, The movie can't say those things, but holy shit, does it come close, right? And like, holy shit, is it like an intense and captivating and terrible thing to watch as a result. Um, so yeah, I, I guess just how does that hit you, Jason? Right? Like I know it, it, that, that was what was so fascinating to me about this movie, right? Is that I had to hold several different takeaways, right? The, the bravery of this movie in 1953, the essentialness of this movie in 1953 and the fact that because of what it was trying to do and what it had to do, it has politically become something that I am at odds with, right? If only because it doesn't go far enough. Right, right. I, <clears throat> excuse me, in reading the movie, I don't know how closely I can adhere to the idea that like, yes, there was true empathy on the part of the filmmaker. I I don't know that I, like, I, I, did, I certainly didn't see that in the movie. If I want to read into it or if I like, maybe through discussion, we can come back around to the, like, I'm number one use case for having my mind changed on this podcast. I think I don't know that I saw that. I think I did see like, like you said, contemporaneous messaging. I saw something that felt like it was relevant to how people actually felt at the time. Uh, I do. I did particularly enjoy how um, it feels weird to say that I enjoyed it because it is really just like a very stark movie by the end, but uh, how like the war and the aftermath sort of underpin everybody's motivations uh, constantly like they're I forget the exact line but um the letter writing businesses leader uh y- Yamachi maybe I forgot to look up character names because this is trial of at night baby um but he sort of makes excuses for Reikichi as like somebody who wanted to die in the war if he couldn't have Michiko and you know this like they they like the war was is sort of like a catalyst that sort of changed everybody and forced people like Michiko into a line of work that they you know normally might not have or something you know all these sort of uh, like you said of their time reasons and excuses and ways that changed lives um it's really interesting I think where it ends up from that and sort of like the input output and how it interrogates that middle point of like this is a real world situation that now Reiki has to deal with he has to recognize that you know his his whole um, uh, path from like you were saying outside the movie theater uh, Harry like a, an avowed Japanese nationalist essentially to like can he find in this person a reason to like question or like really look back critically at his previous stances about you know the you know what his nation what 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 his belief in his nation really stood for that's like really broad i think it's where we'll get with this episode but i do want to i wanted to see what cody thought of all of that like that whole ball of stuff did that ring to you at all <laughs> yeah it, boy is it a big ball of stuff and like you know we're we're gesturing at the the trajectory that this movie has and like where it starts is is not I, I sort of noted down like it, it's not a comedy but it almost feels like one like it's it's considerably lighter i'm not like i mean there were a few audible laughs at things in this movie not so mm-hmm. much as like um the moon has risen which i feel like is more of like an audible like i'm laughing at this this is yeah like very much a, a, a romantic comedy leaning um if we're just pit- fitting these into genre boxes which we all know how much of a fool's errand that is um that is one for for OG listeners. Um, but uh, 
like the the first half hour of this um is is a considerably different picture it's the the mappings of like what these characters uh impulses and and backgrounds are it's a brother living with uh another like someone or rather a man living with his brother and like taking up translation work and he stumbles into this situation with his friend yamaji who um like it's still translation work but it's a very like they refer to it as a strange business which is sort of like the like really smart the movie's way of saying like this is a very niche and like in a nice timely way like this is a very um historically specific view lens that we're that we're like or situation Mm -hmm. that we're seeing that like and like that designation ended up being really important for again our, our 2022 eyes um and like you can like in retrospect to you know a couple hours ago um like watch watching a movie all about that and watching um rikichi's um like sort of reconciling with with everything that he's going through the things i will eventually talking about like solely through the lens of this of this business that's and like keeping with this very um considerably more light tone is man that's so ambitious that's like what an ambitious movie that would have been if if they would have um like stuck to that and obviously like we we get to the point where um you know uh, michiko excuse me has been built up and like we see her they reunite and it's at that point that the movie takes a considerably different turn and you know the the couple questions that that i was grappling with throughout um or just i not so much questions but just like items and we already sort of um touched on you you, uh, you two rather alluded to them a little bit but the the sort of lingering on um uh you know uh, rikichi's morality the sort of ha- hammering home he can't come to terms with um you know, the, the, the way people must live in order, you know, it's like, Hey, we, we do what we got to, or we do what we got to do to get by homie. <laughs> like that's the way it is. Just like throwing that at him for, for 55 mm-hmm. minutes and like trying to get it to stick. And then like the other thing, like what Jason brought up, what you brought up about, you know, is, is there enough empathy here? Um, are, are, you know, is this movie a successful call for compassion for, for women, for the lower classes, for both, for everybody, for anybody, or, you know, because we're all, um, I guess speaking for, um, to Yamaji's point, uh, as Harry, I think you said at the end of the movie, like we're, we're all somewhat responsible, like which of us can really cast the first stone, D- you know, was that a, a successful sort of landing point for the movie? Um, those are the things that I'm still kicking around, but, uh, I, Mm-hmm. a nice this movie was i think a nice vessel for for those kinds of questions yeah it definitely is it's it's kind of like you evoked the specter of um uh smooth talk earlier harry and it kind of reminds me of that where and it's like it is one movie until it is distinctly another movie and then you realize the point of the movie came in the last you know chunk of it and like i, I think to center us and we don't need to make this a topic of a discussion just to center us as far as like what what the movie did and where it was and where it went was like the movie starts and we see Reikichi and his brother as, um, you know, Reikichi is a girlfriendless 30 year old. Uh, his brother is, you know, uh, kind of flitting around. He's a bookseller who's, you know, making his next dollar and, uh, you know, sort of flirting and courting women left and right. Um, a little bit freer, a little bit less baggage. Maybe, uh, it's not like clearly explained for the first bit that he was, that Reikichi was formerly in the army or uh, in the national, uh, you know, military, um, and in that space for the first like 30 minutes or so, it's allowed to be, I guess, in line with what we've seen with the other Kenyu Tanaka movies we've seen, where it's like, uh, it's, like you said, a little bit comedic, a little bit romantic comedy style. He gets a new job and sort of starts to, uh, you know, explore this very niche thing that you were talking about. Um, 
he sees happiness from the outside sort of. So that's the only hint that we have that he's like not, uh, well, particularly well adjusted or well equipped to like really reenter or enter society. He's just like doing laundry at home and doing his translation work until he gets his new job. Um, but then his encounter with Michiko brings out the, these like toxic ideals, obviously that had been stewing for since before the war. And it sort of changes from him grappling with a new situation and like learning, I guess, discovering this whole niche industry thing uh, and sort of meet cutes and stuff to uh, really like an interrogation of what he's said. And that I think is, is why the pivot feels so difficult to swallow is because it's very quick and because it's very dramatic. This character becomes like sort of a very judgmental, very unlikable. Like I said, his, uh, his boss and his brother are both constantly like, you don't get to say those things like you exactly like you have no uh you have to change like fix your heart kind of thing they're not like that direct about it but then it sort of rewards reikichi every once in a while by allowing him to have you know his monologue about uh his you know that you can't fix these things that like i don't know if i could ever forgive her that there's nothing to save um and that for me is like that's the friction is there are characters there's plot there's writing that says this person's ideals are antiquated they are to be like you know uh, recognized and railed against and yet they make up about 40 percent of the movie uh so that's where i like that's the cognitive dissonance for me once that shift starts to happen yeah no i mean i think that that's really well characterized and i find the swerve that this movie does to be one of the most effective things about it um my argument for why this may be an empathetic movie and i don't think I blame you for not seeing that. And I actually, you know, without knowing Kunio Tanaka's politics and um, filmography better, I'm speaking for her, right? And I shouldn't say that. But I'm just saying that, again, this movie came out in 1953. The war was not even right. 10 years old. There mm. were, like, the, the man depicted here was probably, in all honesty, the majority conservative opinion of Japanese men of right. his age right. at this time. So in, in my mind, it is, like, not, not only empathetic, it is, like, wildly brave to a ridiculous extent to depict something like this, right? Like, imagine if a movie like this had come out about the Iraq War. Eight, like eight years after the Iraq war, which who, when did the Iraq war even end? So you couldn't even like <laughs> uh, specify that. But, and, and there were characters who were up against this guy, right? Who were saying like, no, you're wrong. I mean, I agree. It doesn't go far enough in the sense that like, again, from, especially from our perspective as, you know, Americans in 2022, uh, Raikichi is, is irredeemable. Right. Like his his like inability to express any sort of like understanding or empathy and not to see the ways in which he and his uh, ideologies have failed um, everyone in, in his life, just mm -hmm. the way they failed him. It, it makes him a monster in this movie. Um, it's a, a little it's, bit. Yeah. It's tough to swallow. I mean, it really is. I mean, like There's there. There are several scenes that are like all about how terrible that, right? Like they're even like right. after he um, is writing love letters, which first of all, like he's literally profiting off of American yeah. GIs, um, like I said. But um, after that scene with uh, with Michiko, he um, he's like scolding one of the women in that's getting a love letter written, right? Mm -hmm. About go straight. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, look, at, yeah. look at what you're doing. Like you, and like even his brother, right? Like his brother is like a weird wholesaler of American books, right? It's, it's really hammered through again and again, how devastated the Japanese economy was. 
and how like a big reason why Michiko wants to be back with Raikichi in the first place is economic because she's a woman who has been tarnished by her relationship with the Japanese man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, so I, I'm, that's a lot of subtextual or extra textual reading. Right. I think that like, not all of it. I think uh, like what, what, what you're saying about like, I mean, I'm thinking of the lines like, um, I think it's his boss who says like, I, or maybe it's his brother who says like, you had to hate to survive the war. Yeah. Like he, that, that these elements of how he's like survived, uh, how he literally got through the war, how he didn't die are what have been like ruling his life since, yeah. since he got out of the war and how maybe that's not necessary, but like, Hey, I understand. I get where you're coming from. So in light of what you're saying and how it's like, we're painting a realistic portrait of people like this, right. not a, not an idealistic one where this it's person tough, sort of though, realizes right? their folly. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, because like we think at least from like our Western perspective or our perspective as, as movie goers that like Raikichi and Hiroshi, his brother are like the protagonists. Right. And therefore like mm-hmm. their arc is supposed to bring them to our understanding by the end of the movie. Right. That does not happen. Like, I think that the ending very pointedly doesn't make it happen, but even more importantly, like, like Tanaka will not give us a satisfying conclusion where these two men see the errors of their way, right? Like, there's that moment where, um, like, Hiroshi is, like, is like going whole hog to, to get uh, Raikichi and Michiko back together, and then he's confronted with the material realities of what Michiko did, right? He meets other um, prostitutes in the park, and even he is aghast by it, right? And he can't bring himself to be like, no, you were you were doing what you had to do to survive. You which like also like sorry, this is a side note, but like they even make it clear that like Michigo was was um like escaping an abusive home. So like they do a really good job of demonstrating that like, hey, like the war didn't do this to Michiko. It was like the the expectations of Japanese masculinity that mm-hmm. did this to her, um, like f- like full bore, not just sort of like the economic devastation wrought by um, the war. The other thing about it is that, um, like, I, I and again, I'm I'm no expert, but like the sort of at least from what I know about what I've read and what I've seen is that like the sort of existential death of the Japanese nationalism that followed world war two was like, like deeply scarring, right? Like Hirohito right. had to literally say, I'm not God. Like, th- like people, they made him admit that to the Japanese people mm-hmm. and the Japanese people had to reckon with the fact that like, Oh, like when I was being a sailor in the Navy in world war two, that wasn't a God appointed mission. It was wrong to do that. And, like, in my mind, to hear, and again, like, I don't know the full political context, but, like, to hear the dude that gives Reikichi his job say, like, oh, we have to atone for the sin of war. Like, to hear a Japanese person admitting that the war was a sin in a movie and having it be cast that way is itself sort of a radical idea, I feel. Yeah, and it, it lands, the the fact that that, um, idea was, I mean, it was spoken by Yamaji and this was me still trying to get a read on his character for like how, like how we felt. Cause when he, he says that, you know, it's after he and 
Rikichi have the reunion. He shows Rikichi like his work and he brings him back home and he's like, Hey, let's get drunk tonight. And he sort of says it with like a, a kind of almost like bravado or, or swagger and just like, you know, it's, yeah, it's almost like I, I'm atoning for, you know, the, the sin of the war. And just, <laughs> it's and, almost and, like we're atoning for a sin of war or something. It's very, <laughs> it, it gets very on the nose, right? Like little, I said, yeah. like he literally says right. like, Oh, let he who cast the first stone are the, you know, who is without mm-hmm. sin cast the first stone. So, Right. Yeah. And like having bookending is, isn't necessarily proper, but like mapping that onto the end and like gauging like his ideology against uh, his buddy Rikichi's. And like, that's part of the reason I, I like the ending and why I guess that would be like another, another data point as to why this movie is like does successfully um, either call for, for empathy or, or like call for compassion or at least, uh, you know, attempt to in, in the right ways because the, the, cinematically um or narratively like the the climactic beat is not the two of these people um reuniting um you know reikichi and and michiko and i think that would have been probably the course of action for you know a lot of attempts at you know this this type of thing i I, like we've seen that before you know it's the more like i guess hollywood approach if if we want to call it that but like the 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 moment that the point the high point rather that we end on is that speech from uh one of the other you know one of the i guess couple of speeches yamaji has at the end there's the one where he slaps around rikichi where it's like oh man vindication that must have felt really good uh for for that uh for that man, character one of one of the best like a dude getting hit scenes of all time right i had been yeah. so waiting for it the 2022 m- version of this movie his brother just completely beats his ass right yeah. And it would be well warranted. Um, and then he has, yeah, that, that, um, monologue in the car, uh, about casting the first, uh, casting the first stone on the way to the hospital and a really great, uh, sequence to end the movie on like, like spectacular editing. Like I, I loved it a, a, a whole lot, like on par with some of the, um, you know, the, the best sequences from, um, oh God, the, the, the first one we talked about my, uh, Hey, forever, uh, try, try love after dark. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a eternal breasts, um, you know, that, the I pulled up letterboxd and it pulled up the eternal breast version. So I'm going to go with eternal breasts. Um, some of like my favorite sequences from that movie, like the, the cross cutting between the hospital bed and the car. And, um, it's, it's obvious that Rikichi has this moment of like, you know, my, my heart has changed. I have undergone the ideological, um, you know, uh, I've crossed these hurdles, jumped through, you know, all the appropriate hoops that I need to, to, to be a more competent person, um, which is, uh, you know, generalizing, but like, that's, that's what we, we were all waiting for. And the fact that it ends on that. And it's like, that's, that is what, like he found, he found empathy in the, in the, you know, the corners of, of his soul. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. Yeah, like it, and but that that sort of thing gets bogged down by the fact that Jason, to your point, it like forty percent of the movie is him, um, like not being that, like very explicitly, like vocally, um, mm. physically, and um, like I, I can, I don't know, I, I didn't think I would be able to get over that. I thought the ending did a, a pretty solid job at like getting to the the place where I, I needed to be as a viewer. Yeah, and I mean exactly what Harry was saying about like the, I have no eyes but 2022 eyes through which to look at that and say like how much of this 98 minutes was spent expl- like just letting uh uh Reikichi do his thing and like explain his, like oh yeah, I was I was I was a nationalist uh, without saying that and I, you know, judge this woman for uh you know her uh, choice of career or the way that way of life that she was forced into as part of like uh you know just survival during the wars kind of thing and it doesn't 
it feels like it sort of hammers that and repeats it. Harry said that it like really drives that and really makes it polemic by the end. Um, I like, I think that's absolutely true. I like, I feel like I'm closer now to the understanding that like this must have been a radical message to send so soon after the war, especially to like mainstream Japanese audiences and to like put that on the international stage by submitting it to Cannes in 1954. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up the ending, Cody, but I do want to get there eventually. Harry, unfortunately, here's the Zencaster thing, brought up a point that I wanted to talk about before we pivoted. So if that's okay, I want to jump back to that. Of course. Um, you you brought up that like uh the just like the deep psychological scar and none of us are experts here, but these deep psychological scarring of like the war and its uh aftermath and the you know losses that the Japanese people incurred, not just like physically as far as casualties but literally like on the on the survivors what how people remember it in this movie was one of its like most striking strongest points to me um like it like what i talked it all up to was like a certain amount of culpability that even the common you know average japanese uh, citizen you know no matter which way they felt about the you know their, their country's participation in in world war ii like how they all felt a certain shared responsibility culpability and how that looked after the war was done there's the whole who will atone thing that uh, yamaji gets onto and that his brother gets onto um there's the like you needed hate to survive thing there's like just the i don't even know the rhetorical symbolism i guess of women literally like making still making their um livings talking to american gis who have like who are no longer fighting a war uh it's like just staying in touch with them. And that's a whole like cottage industry. The idea that like not even exploiting, but leveraging that trauma to like, here's a way that we're going to survive in the wake of war is to like have constant reminders of it is like really, it was really, it's almost fucked up, but it's very powerful. I think the whole, like the culpability nationally and what that means specifically for normal people commoners not necessarily soldiers not necessarily politicians or anybody or you know emperors god kings who sort of like were the ones who made that push and made the decision and set national policy but the ones who had to deal with it as people who run businesses who people who have families people who must provide for themselves and just saying like what did that do to people down on the ground because not everybody would have like not everybody was aligned with the with an imperialist ideal right uh, yeah, that's actually a great pivot to what I was going to talk about because it, that is actually like the limits of this movie to me, right? Is that, and again, it's like, it's not fair to say it doesn't go far enough, but, um, you know, like I think it, at one point, like he even, um, y Yamaji literally goes, um, who atones for war? Right. And the movie makes the point that it's like it's these women who didn't have anything to do with it, who feel it first and foremost. Right. Because like women already had more limited options than anybody else in Japanese society, certainly than men. They were already more marginalized. All of a sudden, all of the men are gone. Like Raikichi couldn't be around to take care of um, Michiko because he was gone to war. Right. Um, and so now they have to. Um, they did what they have to do to survive. And now they're still atoning for the sins of war because these men come home and they're disgusted by these women just for being women, right? Just for surviving. That is not what the movie says, right? Like, unfortunately, I think that like the thing that was hardest to stomach for me in this movie is that um, they create this distinction 
between sex workers who are sort of unreformed, these women that are still sending love letters to American men, these women that are still looking for American men to um, sleep with, to get money out of, and people like Michiko who are at least sort of um, remorseful. Michiko's supposed remorse for the things that she had to do is the differentiating factor that makes it possible for Raikichi and his brother to forgive her or to begin to imagine to forgive her, right? And that is the problem with this movie, right? And I think that it's it's the problem, it's the concession that probably Tanaka had to make in order to make this movie make sense to the people who are watching it. But it's like, that is bullshit, right? Like, there is nothing wrong with even the women who this movie tries to portray as sort of demonic in the the park who are just making fun of and, and like openly talking about how they'll never sleep with Japanese men. They only sleep with American GIs because they're the people who can pay them and all of that stuff and the way that they're thrusting it in this guy's face. The movie wants us to think of those people as like subhuman, right? The movie wants us to, to think of that as really disgusting behavior. And honestly, even kind of the love letters themselves, right? Like it, the really disappointing thing about this movie is the, it kind of wants to like have its cake and eat it too and finger wag the women who are writing these love letters to, um, get these men to send them money. And like, you know, obviously from our sensibility, it's like, that's bullshit, right? Like they're, what these women did is not wrong. Um, the only thing that, that is wrong is that this war forced them into that in the first place if they didn't want to be there. You know what I mean? It's like, um, I I think that like the, I love the shared culpability that you spoke of, J- Jason, but what I don't like is the indiscriminate um, sort of like spread of that culpability, right? It it seems to imply that the women, especially working class women, poor women, abused women, um, sex workers are somehow equally culpable in uh, the war and therefore have their own responsibility and sins that they must atone for. And I'm like, what? Like, no, I like, I get it with Raikichi. My man like enlisted and went to the Naval Academy and joined the war because he believed in it. And he still thinks of himself as a fallen soldier, right? As somebody who is entitled to a better life than he has, who is entitled to a traditional Japanese wife who, by being with him, will let him live the values that he uh, learned growing up and that led him to war, right? The movie almost gets there because there's that incredibly mm-hmm. effective swerve where it's like, you think this is going to be like a Wong Kar Wai movie for the first half hour, right? It's like, oh, like these are like star-crossed lovers and they're going to reunite through this. And I was like so excited for that. And then the movie hits you with like, what happens when one of these guys is an unreformed Japanese nationalist who right. hates women, and they, right? And, they, and it's like, they, oh, they fuck. Really- they really drive it home because they have like he hears her name, he, her voice through uh, like the 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 blinds of the shop, and the guy who's writing the letter says she called herself uh, Mitchy, and he's like he has an inkling that it's her, and he runs after her, and then there's like literally the most saccharine. I think it might be like the first time jump we've seen in a Kinuyo Tanaka movie back, I believe to their childhood, right? I wasn't imagining that that's like they're playing in the Sakura and everything like, man, that, that flashback also contains uh, what in my opinion is the best shot in this movie where um, Michiko is praying at her mom's grave and uh, Raikichi's mother comes to drop off flowers at the grave. And she goes like, she says, if only your mom was still here, if only she wasn't dead, 
uh, you wouldn't have to suffer the way you are. And then the very next shot, they zoom out and you see all the graves in the graveyard. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh my God, like this is a major 20th century Japanese yeah. filmmaker. Um, but like, again, then it, it sort of, uh, it's sort of a, equivocates right it's sort of like mm-hmm. like i wanted the swerve to be complete i wanted tanaka and i you know not to be too presumptuous but you almost have to think tanaka herself maybe wanted to like really hit them with the like okay like you viewer are the person who is raikichi you think you deserve to come home and to continue a traditional japanese lifestyle because actually your ideology wasn't wrong you simply lost and we can pick ourselves back up the women have been waiting for you nobody's been nobody's moved on you don't have to reconsider your life right raikichi says like i waited for you for 5 years like i went to war and and like i i thought that you would be here for me and it's like you don't get that motherfucker because it's your fault right it's like you you have to like re evaluate what happened here and you have to like stand in the fact that that traditional life that you were dreaming about was never what you thought it was going to be because it was always predicated on a power inequality right but like again that's that's really grading this movie on a 2022 curve yeah 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 or grading it on a scale of like um talking heads lyrics you know this isn't my beautiful home this isn't my beautiful one uh yeah i and it's not even, I mean, the, I, I guess some of the things that you just touched on here, it's not even like back or uh, armchair director where like we wished that this movie had capitalized on. I mean, like some part of me was, I mean, like I said, outside of the theater, not to be like dopey letterboxd user, but just like, man, the first 30 minutes of this, of this movie is just like, wow, five stars, just like extra. Yeah. But I like what we got, I think was still pretty great. And on the note of, like great shots that shot of um and i think we all like um, emoted at the same time but rikichi and michiko the reunion um like being framed within the sliding train door um and like that shot especially like lends itself to be thinking all right wong kar wai movie coming up um it it's, doesn't really oh, man, do it's so <laughs> it's but it but it does look so good it's like a, an incredible moment of like we talked uh in our discussion about uh forever woman the eternal breasts about how she has, or at least I did, about how I love her, like her her cinematographer. But anyway, her as a director, t- having like an artistic voice, uh, the decisions to like show street scenes and like just the longest shots she can get of like a market with like a Tokyo Tower in the back or like a train moving in the background and a truck moving in the and just like really well set mise en scène, just beautiful shit. But then you get like really highly stylized stuff. There's there's been at least one in each of these movies where it's like she decided okay, I've gone for the Ozu thing. I've decided to make a cool, like really natural life as it is type thing. Here's where I'm going to make it look like the most saccharine, like a Wong Kar Wai movie. And it's the train thing moving. It's the, you know, three quarters shots in a forever woman. It's uh, like the moon glistening in the background of, um, of the moon also rises. And it's like, Jesus, like, you didn't need to do those things to drive home the point you're trying to make, but it really like it sticks in the brain and makes you think, this is like, this was a, a pivotal moment visually. Like it was in, important to mo- note that this was not just like the rest of the movie. Important to make it feel a little bit like dreamlike, a little more authored. Right. Um, that I, I I loved that personally. Like there were a bunch of times I loved looking at this movie, but that was like that was the style. Um, I uh, if it's okay, can we jump to the ending? Because uh, Cody brought yeah. it up earlier. Um, just to like again, set and center us a little bit. So the and ending finally after you know the back and forth of trying to convince. 
Reikichi that he needs to change his mind about Michiko and trying to convince Michiko that she needs to find a new career and they need to find a middle ground somewhere there. Uh, Michiko runs away from, as Harry was intimating, um, runs away from her previous, like the group of uh, prostitutes she used to run with uh, who are like approaching her in a public square with uh, Reikichi's brother. And she decides to run away from them. And she has her very emotive moment of, you know, what she wants to be and how she wants to leave that life behind kind of thing. Uh, and she runs across the street, gets hit by a car. Police notify Reikichi back at his place uh, that it's ha- or her place, I guess, that it's happened. And the movie ends literally with them both in limbo. She's in a hospital bed appearing to come out of, you know, a, a state of coma or something. Uh, and he is just in the car with Yamaji, uh, Yamaji spouting, you know, monologues about responsibility and, uh, you know, atoning for sins, etc. And this movie just ends there. Like, I did not expect it to stop there, because, but until I started hear, to hear the music swell and the way that each of these movies has ended just with that very triumphant, da, 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 like cadence. And I was like, this, that's really where we're leaving it, huh? Is with uh, Reikichi's face looking sallow and like, almost surprised in the backseat of a taxi cab as he's racing to the hospital before maybe his, you know, the love of his life dies of being hit by a car. It was, it's very like a moment of cognitive dissonance that I feel like is intentional, but I have a hard time piecing together. Why? Okay. Yeah. No, for me, that is like fully like a Tanaka all, but ended the movie by sort of taking a picture of the audience watching it and turning it back on them. Right. She's like, Hey, like the way this story ends is up to you now, motherfucker. Right. It's like, are you going to forgive Michiko? Are you going to see the fact that the reason she got hit by a car is your fault? Right. Like, is it like the reason she's still suffering? The reason why she's in the hospital right now is because you didn't forgive her because your pride and your hypocrisy wouldn't let you forgive her. Or, is this going to end with a reconciliation because you realize those things, right? It's sort of like she won't let you have the ending just like she didn't let you have the love story you thought this movie is going to be because it's like, no, it's now it's your turn. Like now you do the work, right? Um, just before that, uh, there's an amazing, speaking of stylized, an amazing close-up of Michigo's face, a very rare close-up. There are not many close-ups in Tanaka movies, I've noticed. And there, there is light coming from passing cars um, that's shining over her face. And she looks so frightened in that moment. Mm-hmm. And she, she looks both frightened and vindictive and resolute all at the same time simultaneously. And she's having this shocked, horrified um, realization. And it's when um, uh, Rikichi's brother, who has always kind of been on her side, when he's like, well, it really was only the one American soldier that you slept with, right? She like backs away from him up to this fence. And we have this scene. And it's like, she is realizing that like, even this man that she thought was on her side, that was reformed, is never going to see her the way that she deserves to be seen right. is always going to see her as damaged goods as a number. Right? Yeah. As, yeah. As a number, as somebody who made him, who like, who is uh, like, uh, irretrievably tarnished by decisions that she made that she didn't have to make. And now she's this fallen woman. Right. Um, it's a, it's a staggering sequence. Um, and that's why she runs away and that's why she gets hit by the car. Right. Um, it's like, like the graveyard scene, it's an, it's. I think that the visual storytelling in this movie does things that the, the script can't almost, right? Because like the script can't come right out and say like, dog, like 
the like the way that Rikichi and Rikichi's brother see women and see themselves is the reason why this suffering is being perpetuated. And it's the reason why the suffering existed before the war. Um, like I, I, I honest to God think like the script can't say that. And so Tonica had to with visuals and with the ending. Right. And it's like, it's wild. It is. And I think, um, yeah, I ultimately, I agree. Um, I think like, I don't know if I can characterize it, uh, much better than that, but I, I do think me having recently, um, just uh, like for me personally, I going through some like Douglas Cirque movies, like some really just like the melodramious of melodramas, um, at least that I, I know of and like getting without like talking about plot points in specific movies of just like having, some final acts or like final sequences that focus on like, even when characters are not together, like ensuring that each of like it's, you know, may come down to one person, like (laughs) coming back to life or, you know, not dying. And then the other person, like seeing the error of their ways or like overcoming, you know, whatever other, you know, having a certain change of heart. Um, And so like maybe those having those in, in my back pocket help me like a little bit, more with this I, I don't know how much trouble i would have had with it otherwise necessarily i i do th- like the again the editing was like really uh effective on me and uh, like i i really um bought into that but i guess also thinking about it now you know if, if we had gone um uh, a different route with the ending and uh, again just for lack of a better characterization just and like made it more hollywood where the two of them got together and they like embraced or, or kissed or whatever in, in the hospital bed like that's Rikichi at this point is so unlikable um, and like perhaps consciously so that like him like seeing the error of his ways and then like getting to feel validation from like, uh, you know, uh, initiating this reunion with uh, like physically literally being the one initiating it because he's the only one of the two who can like go to her because she is um, inert at that point in time. Um, She was just hit by a fucking car. Um, Like that would have been like almost too good for him. Right. Like she, yeah, she th- she thankfully for the audience like did not get punished for being a woman, and thankfully for the audience, um, I'm doing like praying hands. I know this is an audio only medium, but like thankfully for the audience, Rikichi uh, realized how much of a shithead he was during the last like couple minutes of of that you particular hope, sequence. Hopefully, 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 yeah. hopefully, I don't know. Head and hands. Like we, we just, we see the beginning of that spiral. Um, and we, we saw, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, that's, that's me being again, praying hands, hopefully. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's how I'm choosing to read. I like the optimist take the optimist view of the ending. I was trying to think about how far you could have taken the end of this movie and had it still have the same, like, could they have seen each other in the hospital and he pops into the room and she looks at him and then they're like cut and, Exhumed. you know, Right. Like, would that have worked or did it have to be this state of transit for both of them where it's like things are changed? Maybe her opinion, maybe her how she feels about the situation is changing. Maybe how he feels about the situation is changing because he's now sort of realizing the area of his ways, as Cody was saying. So I was trying to think about, like, if we've chosen that lean and ending that like open, how much further could we have taken it before it lost, you know, the punch? Yeah, I mean, I think that like it had to be this way, right? I think it like, I even think that like, it's maybe even a little bit too optimistic the way it is. Right. Because like, it does imply that things are going to be all right. She opens her eyes. Um, he, he's in the car with his boy. Um, but I, 
I guess I was waiting and what I really wanted, again, it, it's, it's, it's a tremendous sort of um, point in favor of the power of this movie that like, I kept expecting the third act sort of twist, if you want to call it that, to be like, the reason why he won't go to her is because he's ashamed of himself, right? Mm. And I like kept waiting for that to be, because again, in, in the Douglas Sirk version of this movie, that's totally something that would happen, is he would be like, no, it's not her. Like, how can I how can I go back to her when I said the things that I said to her, right? Or something like that. Um, the movie doesn't do this because that would have been too easy again, right? Um, and maybe even to 2022. I like... I even thought that they were going to end on a scene where he was like in the car and he was like talking about it, that right. Like right up until the end of this movie, I thought I was going to get an admission of guilt from, um, uh, Raikichi. And it's like, I think that, I think that the movie wants you to draw your own conclusions, right? Like, I honestly think that like head in hands is also the movie's opinion about it. Right. It's like, did you understand what I just showed you? Like, are you going to do the right thing? Like, are you going to move on or do we have to do this all again? Right. Um, yeah. It, it's just like, you know, the, the, like the thing that sticks in your craw about the fact that like, um, you know, Michiko gets hit by a car for just existing again. So she is kind of literally punished again for being a woman, mm. but it kind of had to happen by this movie's like plot arc, right? Like it had to be like, no, you don't understand Raikichi. Like you are not going to be the person who suffers for your intolerance, like the people you love are going to be the people who suffer because they always are. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, my, I guess my last thing is that, uh, I just like literally just remembered, uh, this is her first movie also. Yeah. Isn't that uh, fucking nuts? So imagine the chutzpah, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're the second female director to ever exist in Japan and you have, you're making your first movie and this is the fucking movie you make. It's like, that's like, a, that's a queen. That's right? calling I mean, a shot about like the end of your career. Like just fucking you thought, you thought this was wild. Just fucking wait. Right. Like, well, yeah. And just like the idea that it's like, that's, this is unproven, right? Mm -hmm. This is like, you're the second woman ever to direct a movie. You've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. And it's like, you know, I'm actually going to do a movie that like, like straight up goes to the heart of, uh, the ideology that probably a lot of the men that I know in my life still espouse. Right. It's like, man, that's like some world historical class, uh, like guts. It, yeah, we just needed one one last shot, I think, of Reiki staring at the camera and saying that uh, nationalism is a is a poison that depersonalizes and dehumanizes its citizens uh, in favor of national trauma and sins. Um, or uh, you know, palpable. my my thought, which was like when she had that that face that she was making she just pulls a gun out of her purse and fucking mercs uh raikichi's <laughs> brother it's like that would have been something to do right like that's the i guess that's the like tarantino version of this movie but like you part of you wants to see it right it's like he, oh he, he dies and the, and the lights of the cars just slowly yeah, exactly. swipe over going. his body oh man that would and, rock. and she's like now i gotta find my stepmom and then they play her out right it's like <laughs> let's fucking go hand. oh jesus bang uh, bang he hit the ground <laughs> Uh, Cody, I understand you got a little tiny talking point. Do we want to squish it in a junk drawer or? Yeah, sure. Yeah, if we want. I mean, well, okay. is, is this, is the drawer being opened? Is I'm it... putting a timestamp here, so we're going to say, okay. The All right. Junk drawer well, I guess opened. before I launch, it, before I launch too far into it, uh, I guess quick question, just for my own understanding, um, Reikichi and, um, 
and Hiroshi are so they're they're brothers. Do they give an indication in the movie that like which one is the older brother, or do it they is, not specify? I yes. think it's highly implied that Raikichi's the older brother, right? Because he calls it, him. I think he calls like he says a thirty year old. He calls him bitchless at a certain point. He's like, yeah. "Hey, you're thirty years old and you ain't got nobody." Um, and oh I, yeah, yeah. That's I right. think that's like a. But he does. He does have out. some money because he just got paid. <laughs> Right. Well, that's so that's I guess that's the thing. And ultimately, it lands on something that I like, you know, I'm a a sucker for a good brothers movie. This is, you know, among many other things, I think very much uh, a brothers movie. And I, 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 because I don't have a better adjective right now at this point in the evening, I'll just say I'm fascinated by um, like the the way that their relationship is built up, because there are sort of you know, there are elements of, um, like one having, uh, a certain like foothold over the other and vice versa at various points, um, you know, due to circumstances, um, very like historically significant ones, Raikichi is, is bunking with Hiroshi and like Hiroshi is, is sort of presented, um, you know, he, he like, he has it together at the beginning of the movie, but you know, we learn more about his career and was like, Oh yeah, this, you know, he's, he's a dirty capitalist. Um, but he like, he, he gets, uh, you know, he has so much money and then the, there's, you know, a little subplot with him, like engaging in, in more, you know, fun capitalist, uh, antics. He has really, f- um, fun and funny, like physical mannerisms when he's like scurrying places that like Rikichi doesn't have because he is, um, uh, shell shocked and like weathered by war and sadness and just like deep remorse, um, for lots of things. And, um, yeah, I, them just like, uh, verbally and emotionally sparring with each other. I just, I don't know. I, I enjoyed watching the relationship even when it was hard to watch. I, and I think that especially the way that each of them um, interacted with uh, like Michiko and Yamaji, um, like having their like own, not like parallel, but just like independent interactions with the other um, couple of main characters, like further um, uh, like narratively strengthened, like the connection between those two. And again, again, just in a way that I, I really enjoyed and I wanted to call that out. Oh dude. Yeah. The first scene with those two, with the two brothers in the house, that's like a five star film. Like I was so, I was rarely have I ever been so charmed by the beginning of a movie as I was by that. Um, it's also like the circumstances of their relationship are super important to the themes, right? Like he is the younger brother. He was too young to go to war and that's primarily why he didn't go to war. Right. And now like Raikichi's situation is kind of embarrassing for him. It's kind of humiliating, right? It's like, I'm living with my younger brother and he is taking care of me while I do his laundry. That's mm-hmm. how we're introduced to this character, right? And it's like, it's perfect because it is the sort of thing that like, that's not actually embarrassing. Like, there's nothing wrong with that, especially because like, you're a veteran dog and like the, the economy's in shambles. But it's something that is humiliating for Raikichi, right? And like, right. gives him this sort of wounded animal feeling to him where it's like, I I like, I have all of this angst about my life circumstances. Um, the other thing that makes like, I really love what, uh, what Tanaka does with Hiroshi at the ending, like I talked about, because throughout the movie, he is set up as a very self-conscious foil to Raikichi, right? He is the guy who is not burdened by um, the horrors of war or like the um, demands of nationalism in the same way that his brother is. And so he has these flirtatious women, uh, uh, relationships with women where he doesn't have to be demeaning to them, where they can meet on equal grounds. They have like, he has this really great, cute relationship with the um 
book wholesaler assistant who's Mm -hmm. his age and they sort of have these great little sparring matches and they flirt and stuff but then end of the movie comes right and it's like like he was our boy right like if we're if we're watching this from 2022 hiroshi is the guy that like is well hiroshi and then obviously um yamaji um Mm -hmm. are the people with politics that we can sort of like get behind and his betrayal of um of Michiko there at the end has such impact as a result, right? It's like, this is the guy we thought had her back. And even he betrays her trust at the end. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I think like I pity my brother and I don't know what to do. Right. Are you sure it was just the one Japanese soldier you slept with? Are you sure you're not like them? That's the thing he keeps trying to say to her, right? Is that like, he's defending her from her former friends in the park. And he keeps saying, she's not like you. And she's realizing like, what are they to you? Right. And like, yeah, what, is, yeah. what does it mean that this person who is apparently free of Japanese nationalism, of toxic uh, heteronormativity, which we shouldn't come so quite so hard on Japanese nationalism. Like uh, you don't have to hand it to it, certainly. <laughs> but like this is just to say, right, that like this is this is a movie targeting Japanese people and very much about Japanese. Pe- but like like America's gender politics were super fucked then and now. So I'm Mm -hmm. not trying to, you know, like this movie is very resonant about men and women all told, but um, yeah, yeah, it's like that, that to me was like even the more um, like urgent message here. Right. Is that like, dude, like this is not over. Like the, the sort of like war for um, like the future of Japan, it's still being waged. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, like we still have to like win Hiroshi's soul. Because he's been influenced too. Yeah. Uh, my junk drawer note is I love how often Hachiko is in this movie, the statue of the dog in Shibuya Station. Um, because like it's it's cute and everything, but then like the fact that it is a symbol of like loyalty and dedication to like a Japanese ideal of community and shared purpose and mission and like you know eternal faithfulness and stuff is like. Whew. Well, in, it's in where he wants to meet her. Movie. It's like literally where they were going to meet. And then when he's right. chasing after her, he runs past it and looks for her there and she's not there. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, it, it's got that stuff. You know, it's just mwah. you had you had an idea. You brought it to life and it meant something because you did it. Uh, love that. Love that part. Um, OK, well, I'll say that we can close up the junk drawer. Uh, Cody, do you have a sound for that? Chikunk. We, you must have put some WD forty on those uh, on those wheels before we closed it. I did. Appreciate yeah, that. I was muted while doing it. I figured that wouldn't be a, a, a an engaging the thing content, to have on mic. You, you gotta. We can't lose anything. This is for posterity. Uh, I, I will, okay, I'll, I'll note it for future episodes. I'll make um, distinct lubricating noises. Uh, carry on, Mister Produce. I'll be, I'll be interested to hear what you choose. If it's going to be like the psh of a can of WD forty, or if it's going to be like, oh, uh, well. I'll leave that visual yeah, for the, the listeners to figure out later. Yeah. But but you could go like anywhere from there to like the Tin Man greasing himself up, and it's like with the like goose nozzle thing. Anyway, this is Try Love After Dark, maybe it's nine forty five p.m. and we have one final segment to this episode of our show. Put put the discussion away, put all this rhetoric away, and everything. 
we're here for uh, the final segment of our show, which I can't say the name of like uh, physically until Harry has introduced it for us. Yes, thank you, Jason, and thank you for leaving me my role, my primary role on <laughs> you're this not, show. You're not outsourced just yet, <laughs> Yes, thank you. Uh, it is the segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Wow, thank you, fellas. Uh, it felt like that introduction was written just for me. Um, get ready for more <laughs> rhetoric. Um, no, just kidding. This is uh, as this is uh, Kenny Yotanaka's first film. We'll be taking a look at other fil- uh, first films, rather, in a segment I like to call First Film Fever. FFF, Triple F. Um, fa What I'll do is present a series of prompts somewhat related to the notable first motion pictures that notable, uh, directors have made, um, notable in scare quotes. I, you know what? Everybody's notable to somebody and we'll just leave it at that. After each statement, I will ask y'all in reverse alphabetical by first name order to respond. Um, I guess it should be noted. Shout out to Aaron, who's not on the, on the pod. <laughs> I had that in there for when there were three uh, of us, and it would just be – so I'll just – it's going to be go Jason and then Harry um, for each of them. That's the order right. with. The real uh, bulls get and a, lock horns now. Yeah. Ding, ding. Uh, you'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct a- – I'm sorry. It, it was, I was late on it, but it's do you, there. Do, do you want a clean read um, on, on that sound effect? Give it to me. Ding, ding. And then – Thank you. And the and the person with the most ding dings or points at the end will win. Uh, as always, trivia mafia rules apply here. So use your noodles, not your googles. Uh, I know it's not a problem for anybody here. Um, you do understand that very well. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, and we're going to start question one with the forty year old virgin, which is the first film Judd Apatow ever directed. Um, as my research showed, um, Steve Carell plays the titular character. How tall is Steve Carell, Jason? Hmm, I'm gonna say five ten. Jason's going with five ten. Uh, and Harry, what do you think? I'm trying to think of John Krasinski and how tall he is because I feel like he's dwarfed by John Krasinski. But I think John Krasinski's mm-hmm. like six three or something. I'm gonna go with uh, what you said five ten, Jason. Mm-hmm. Ooh, uh, I'll go with five nine just to be sporting. Harry goes with uh, yeah sporting. Speaking with John Krasinski, should have been hooping. Uh, Tbh, should have been hooping. Uh, hooping. Um, going off a, a few sources on the internet, Steve Carell is reportedly five feet nine inches. God. So point point Mackin for that so this, one. This um, question I dunk. didn't win it, but it did make me think. If John Krasinski hooped, you know, absolutely, he'd go for like the Jordan dunk. And then the camera would zoom in and he'd just do the fucking Jim Halpert face oh, directly God. while while dangling there, you know? I Well, and I say that, A, you're right. B, I forgot that there was literally an episode of The Office. Where like, he does and, hoop. And, where, where, where they hoop. <laughs> it's season one, episode like five. It's like a six episode season. And my family, they're just like when we got into The Office collectively – as a, as a family, we did, we just watched that episode way like <laughs> infinitely more than the rest of them. Just like, oh, you want to put on like the basketball hell, episode hell of the yeah. Office? It was like, hell yeah, it's a, that's uh, sports. Dwight wears a shirt with big anime titties on it. I, like, uh, I'll, I'll never forget that. I was that's what I was like. There's my boy, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and NBC showed them uncensored. It was wild, um, man. Uh, different times. It was like the Wild West. Um, uh, we're having fun, it, and it's well past dark. Uh, so Harry gets the point for that one. Uh, number two, next, uh, we're going to go ahead and pivot to Get Out, which was Jordan Peele's first film as a, as director. 
and I don't know if y'all know this, um, but in many IMDb profiles, uh, they've got a section dedicated to trademarks of that particular artist, whoever's page you're on. So what I'm going to do here is list three Jordan Peele trademarks per IMDb. This is not like a get out question. It just ended up being a Jordan Peele question. Um, but hey, Jordan Peele is a, is a filmmaker and he had a first film. So this fits first film fever. Fuh, 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 fuh. Um, two of the trademarks I list will be real. One of them will be fake and your job will be to pick out the fake trademark. So I'll read them off here one by one. First trademark of Jordan Peele often works with Keegan-Michael Key. Second, his films are darkly comedic. And third, his films include psychological horror. So which one of those is the fake uh, like IMDb version of a trademark? Jason? I'm going to say the Keegan-Michael Key one. He, I don't think he was in any of his movies to date. Has he been? Good question. No. There was a show called Key and Peele that's yeah, pretty Yeah, but I mean, notable. as a director, like as, as a film director, I'm trying to think of subs. You know how Cody's Naughty's Goaty. It, it ends up being a lot of gotchas. You're and right. I'm going to fucking lose my brain if I have to succumb to one of those again. Cody, oh, Cody's Naughty's Goaty. You know, I'm honestly, I'm so turned around now because that's a really good point, Jason. I could totally see this happening. Um, I'm going to go with number three because my version of what Jason just said is that I bet it's something similar, but I bet it's not psychological horror. I bet it's like something else. Uh, that's actually, yeah. Uh, one of the trademarks, his films are something else. Wow. Literally. Um, but, uh, no. Um, so the fake trademark, um, Hey, uh, we should say well thought out, um, processes uh thought processes ideologies from each of you uh the fake trademark is b none of you got it right Uh, son Um, of a bitch uh so often works with keegan michael key was um indeed on the list his films include psychological horror on the list um i made up his films are darkly comedic uh but other ones that were included in that list are his films often focus on race and his films often take place in the suburbs so those are you can Etch, etch them in concrete on a mountain somewhere. I'll Those get a are tattoo Peele's of them. Directorial trademarks. Yeah, please do. Um, shout out to Jason's tattoos. He's got a lot of good ones. And he's going to add that one to his collection of inky winkies. Number three. Uh, for number three, we're going to call out the, uh, the first feature film of director Brad Bird, which is, of course, the Iron Giant uh, American classic. Vin Diesel voices the titular metal man and with him in mind we're going to invoke the rashomon rule which is that no film needs to be longer than rashomon a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by akira kurosawa rashomon comes in at 88 minutes so i ask you all uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury i ask you all what percentage of vin diesel's feature films abide by the rashomon rule jason 15 percent. i think they're all probably way too long i remember bloodshot Hey, uh, hey, uh, blood, you know what? Hashtag bloodshot did nothing wrong. Um, so Jason goes with 15%. Uh, Harry, what are you going with? I like that you said that like it was in memoriam. I remember bloodshot. <laughs> Never forget. Uh, I'm going to go with 10%, I guess. Harry's going to go with 10%. He guesses. Uh, so of the 38 feature film credits that Vin Diesel has um, credited on Letterboxd, uh, letterboxd.com, not a sponsor of this podcast.com. Four of them come in at or under 88 minutes, which gets us to about 10.526%, ah. which ah. 
man. Uh, so two points for Harry. Uh, uh, boop, 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 boop. No for none for Jason. JJ has which, yet to get on the board. Uh, Jason has yet to get on the board. But hey, you know what? Um, hot take. Still very much anybody's game. Uh, Such a Dion. I wish I still had that one. I think I got rid of it. Sometimes <laughs> I just say that in my head when I'm doing something yeah. unrelated with my in, life. And what's indelible. so funny is that like it, it, it don't it always seem to go. It's like it is the one like trigger that you uh would have like deleted because you had to make space that would be the one we reference the most. It is it lives on. Yeah, ain't that just the way? Uh, we got two questions left uh, for question four. Uh, you know what? Let's go ahead and chat about Jamie Babbitt's first film, which is oh, I don't know, a little something called "But I'm a Cheerleader." Uh, as we remember, as we of course remember from our discussion about that film, uh, which by the way, that discussion was court, uh, recorded almost exactly a year ago. Um, Jesus maybe Christ, exactly a year ago. Oh um, God! But um, makes you think. And uh, I'm three so- years older than I was when I recorded it. <laughs> That's and oh, and with that, uh, the turn of the clock, you are now four years older. Um, the that film it stars a multitude of fun personalities, including that of Natasha Leone. Uh, similar to what we've done in previous games, I'm going to read off three quotes allegedly uttered by Natasha Leone. Two of these utterances will be for real. Again, allegedly, and one will be fake. Your task is to pick out the fake one. So I'll read off the three quotes and leave it to each of you to pick out the imposter afterward. Starting with this first one, which reads. My life is very much in the present today, and that's what acting is all about. That's the first quote. Second quote, I would have done well as a gypsy child, I think. A circus baby. I could have played a great street urchin or ragamuffin. That's the second quote. And third quote, I have a real love affair with New York City. I just feel like when you're up or when you're down, the city really cushions you. So those are the three quotes. Which one of those is the imposter, Mr. Daphnis? Three. Uh, I, she's got to be talking about LA, right? Like really cushions you New York. No part of New York cushions you. No part. You know, the name Cody apparently means cushion. What? Think that's you mean like, like pillow or old Gaelic or whatever. Where uh, it come yeah. From? Uh, uh, it's an Anglo-Saxon name, I, I, which, Hey, I don't know what that means. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a white ass name. Uh, that, that, that means, so it cushion. means cu- um, cushion, like pillowy, yeah. like a soft yeah. place to rest. Right. C for cushion is what I've got Jason down for the, the third option there. Harry, which one are you going to go with? Um, it's definitely, I mean, she's definitely talking about New York there, Jason. She's Natasha Leone, but, um, uh, yeah. I think that I, so I was maybe going to do C the same way because I don't think she would say cushion that nothing about New York seems to be cushiony to me, but I'm going to go with, um, a going to go with a, all right. The imposter quote is indeed a, the real quote, the real quote is as follows. My life is very much in the present today. And that's what theater is all about. I'm sure she doesn't say theater. She probably said theater. Um, (laughs) she says theater, go Mets. Fuck the socks. Um, <laughs> hey, you know what? Hashtag the socks did nothing wrong. Let's, you know what? Um, so that's uh, another point for Harry. Quick check at, at the scoreboard here once more before we get into the final question. Um, uh, Harry's at three. Jason uh, is still waiting to get on the board. We Sakuru. launch into. 
I'm not going to say as much as I just want to follow that up with what I want to follow it up with. I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to jump into the fifth and final question. Uh, and for that, we're going to call out the film Ex Machina, which is Alex Garland's first directed film. Uh, one of the leads in Ex Machina is actor Oscar Isaac. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, what I'm going to do is list off four films that Oscar Isaac has been in. And what I'm going to ask each of y'all to do is rank them in order of highest to lowest letterboxed popularity. Uh, you will get a point for each correctly slotted film. And again, there's going to be four uh, films total in the mix. So if you get the order perfectly correct, you'll get four points. If two of the films are in the right places, you'll get two points, etc. I I know you guys know the rules, but hey, you know what? We might have got uh, gotten some new listeners from our uh, discussion about um, Eternal Breasts. So yeah, they're starting they're with Cuneo Tonica's <laughs> Love Letter yeah. from 1953. Welcome, new listeners. Thank you. Hey, yeah, Cuneo uh, Tanaka. Maybe you've heard of her. Um, you probably haven't. Uh, with that, I will now read the list of films y'all are trying to rank from uh, greatest to least letterbox popularity, the only metric in the world that matters. Uh, so number one, we've got uh, 2011's Drive. Uh, second, we've got 2015's Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Third, we've got 2018's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I think he was, um, he voiced a character in like a post credit scene or something like that. And I thought that would be, um, you know, cause Hey, we're, we're all about, we, we love the Marvel cinematic universe, right? We love superheroes. Um, so I figured I'd throw, throw that one in. I am vamping. Um, and lastly, we've got 2021's Dune. So those are the four here we've got. I'll, I'll read them once more to, to vamp a little more. Um, 2011's Drive, 2015's Star Wars, The Force Awakens, 2018's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, 2021's Dune, the connecting thread being actor Oscar Isaac. Great actor, very handsome. Uh, he's got a dumpy, if um, the internet has informed me correctly, like a notable, like a famous dumpy, um, like a Pixar dump truck ass motherfucker. Yeah, no, I mean, um, he, he said, he was like, I can't fit in the Millennium Falcon because of these Latin hips. And it was like the sexiest <laughs> thing that any dude's ever said, right? Oh, we thought that the beginning of this movie was charming. Oscar Isaac talking about his dump truck. Goddamn. Um, have I vamped long enough, Jason? Do you have uh, an order in mind? Yeah, yeah. I know I'm not going to win. I know I could, but I know I'm not going to. So I'm just going to go by the letterboxed recency thing that has always failed me. Uh, I'm going to say number one is Star Wars The Force Awakens. I think that was just too big, and Letterbox was already a thing by then. Uh, two, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, because I'm always angry about how highly roles or movies show up in an actor's popularity infomography on, on letterbox based on like a throwaway line or a cameo or whatever because it's like oh they're attached to it and it's really popular boop it's number one so i'm gonna say number two is spider-man into the spider-verse number three is dune and number four is drive i feel like drive came out um before letterbox was really a thing therefore people would uh i mean they, they've logged it but but like just less so than the gigantic movies i don't know does that make sense harry it does, yeah. but like the thing about it is that Cody's being very tricky because Drive yeah. is like also maybe the quintessential letterbox movie. Yeah, that's <laughs> right? the only thing. That, like I decided if I was gonna put it anywhere but number four, it would probably go at number one, and I'm like I can't risk that. So that's that's a high wager for me. So again, one Star Wars, two Spider Man, three Dune, four Drive. Gotcha. And I'm going to read them right back just to make sure I didn't black out at any point during that. And just, you know, it's in my contract. I have to do it. Uh, so, Jason, your order is Star Wars The Force Awakens, Spider Man Into the Spider Verse, uh, Dune, and Drive. Is that right? 
Nice. Okay, perfect. Uh, Harry, lay it on me. What's your order? I'm going to do Force Awakens number one, although I think that Dune, which is my number two, might actually take it. So I'll be interested to hear that. Uh, My number three is Spider-Verse, and my number four is also Drive. Okay, yeah, we are agreed. Roger, Dodger. Okay, so taking that again from the top, we've got Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Dune, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and then Drive. Yep, is that right? That's correct. Roger Dodger, Roger Dodger, Roger Dodger, um, Oscar Bosker. Um, I'll just say before I read the the final results, thank you all, uh, all, all two of you gentlemen, uh, for playing this this fine evening during which we're recording. The correct order of these films from highest to lowest letterbox popularity is as follows. Uh, taking the lead, we have Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, um, further it. perpetuating the thing that Jason said he, uh, he does not God like, um, which, hey, pretty fair. Um, yeah, IMDb is like that way as well. It's, um, uh, or, you know, there's a little less bias in that, but it's, it's still a, a perpetrator of that. Um, second, we've got Dune. Third, we've got mm. Drive and Four. We've got Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Wow. Um, uh, only one point was obtained uh, collectively by our two contestants. Um, <laughs> Harry pulled out pulled out the dub. Um, I think it's fair to say that we've all now got a case of first film fever. Not to like overstep my my bounds as uh, someone who's very much not a doctor, but that is my diagnosis. Um, Harry, would you like to pop off at all? You know, I'm I'm humbled by that last question. Uh so I don't I don't know that I can. Um did you say that Spider-Verse was number 1? I said Spider-Verse is number 1. That's wild to me. I knew that that movie was popular and it should be. It's the best Spider-Man movie maybe except for Spider-Man 2. I'm not insane. But uh to be more popular than Force Awakens or Dune is very impressive. I feel. I think yeah, I and not to I I'm I'm myself trying to figure out the the ins and outs of how like letterbox recency and and access and like rewatchability plays into things i think spider-man into the spider-verse having it come out in 2018 pandemic start a couple you know, have the pandemic oh. start, the pandemic started a couple years later and it was on netflix for a good stretch if it isn't yeah. still currently i think like that is an unfortunate that's a really good point. It was unfortunate like perfect storm of like and unlike dunes on hbo now drive i don't think really has a consistent home uh, on streaming it's not like it's it's yeah. always on hulu or some shit like that and i mean yeah star wars i guess a little a little maybe star wars no. just missed like the letterbox that's in, what i'm influx, thinking but right? it's on Is disney like, plus right maybe well but like who went back and rewatched it right that's yeah, kind of true. the thing about those movies is that because of fucking abrams in the last movie they kind of right. like have become sour taste yeah yeah so yeah. i wonder if it's just that like Letterbox technically existed, Jason, but like nobody was using it when Force Awakens that's, came out. That's possible. It was twenty fifteen. Yeah, I do you remember? Do you remember? Uh, was it New Year's twenty eighteen into twenty nineteen that we watched? It was Tron like Was it Tron Legacy and, I, um, and 2019, 2020, I believe. 2019, 2020. Okay. Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, we watched. Yeah, Tron Legacy was our our first film of the year twenty twenty, and look how that year turned out. I, I still soft defender of Tron Legacy. I still, hell yeah, dude. I still I still love that that big dumb movie. That's, but holy holy shit, twenty twenty was a rotten year. Yeah, that movie sucks. <laughs> Maybe we should have watched something else. So good, and they're making a sequel. Did you hear about this? I did. Yeah, I feel like uh, Jay Leno. Man, Maybe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, did you hear about this? A Tron Legacy sequel and a Constantine sequel. Um, did We're, someone say beverage? Gina. Yeah. More Feastin. like uh, Constantine. 
uh, if they're making like you hear, you hear about this, you hear about this. I'm like, <laughs> uh, I, I only, I only yeah, why, you're sporting all denim all of a sudden what the hell's going on <laughs> those Duesenbergs just sits behind me 1929 uh, well I only bring that up because that was the last time that I watched Spider-Verse was after you guys left I put that movie on and just like watched it in the background it is Fuck good yeah, good dude. background that shits. movie's yeah. so good oh my it god so good. you hear about the Spider-Man you know movie? what Sh- shout out to all the Spider-Man out there all of them multiverse stuff i mean there's a shitload of spider people maybe not all of them uh thank also, you so I think much you said that spider-verse was in the mcu and it, i don't think it is isn't that a sony movie i mean i, I don't i don't know I mean, multiverse etc etc everything's in we're the three of us this podcast is in the mcu i think you know given multiverse theory <laughs> i don't want no, I, let's not fucking go i don't want to be in the mcu hey but hey, I hey, you best start, you best start believing in multiverses, <laughs> Mac. And you're in one. Yeah, oh you're right. God. Okay, this is the most insufferable we've ever been, and that's where we're going to leave it. Is the end of this episode of the podcast, for which we thank you for listening so much. Uh, this has been an episode about a Kinuyo Tanaka movie. You can watch it uh, hopefully somewhere soon. My God, outside of the trial, and we could not find it. Hence, why this Aaron is such is a dumb way to us. end an episode about a Kinuyo Tanaka movie um, or any episode. But um, yeah, sorry, I just uh, I wanted no. to elongate this episode it's past 10 p.m it really is uh, when you think about it it's past 10 p.m cst right now um but uh check it out wherever you can these movies have been a blast to uh, cover and and watch where we can um uh, if not you can check out the trilons website to try and get showings try and get tickets to showings for the uh final one in the series which will be girls of the night uh and uh follow up uh, that with uh, buy buy some merch buy tickets and shit on the trilons website there's a lot of cool stuff coming up in uh, november uh mad god is playing um and uh, I don't mean to spoil anything, but next year is looking pretty cool, too. Check it out at trilon.org. Check us out at Trilove Podcast. Uh, go back through our backlog. We've probably covered something you at least halfway care about. We did a Detective Pikachu episode. Where's the sequel for that? Detective Pikachu. Makes where you think. That? Yeah, it makes, it makes you think about where the next movie in that series is. Uh, for right now, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. And I mean, the fact that these films are like being restored and distributed um, by Janus, it is Janus, right? It's not Janus. That's not my 10 p.m. brain. The fact, uh, all that is to say, like, theoretically, hopefully, you know, the writing's on the wall for like a a nice physical release, you know, like maybe a box set of of this collection at some point in the the future, Um, hopefully not too distant future, but also go 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 see these you should uh you should uh you should go see them uh if you're able to um support the trial and support independent cinema support uh so you know support women filmmakers again i don't want to throw too many hot takes can we but, get uh, uh can we get a quick round of applause for women you know what uh, Harry, well overdue Mike? yes absolutely uh i've been uh, i've been cody narvison you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh and sex workers. I've been Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. <sighs> two letters to two lovers flying together. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> <laughs>